Let me pray real quick. Lord, as we look at your word, we just ask you to bless and help us to understand and rejoice in your word and the great truths here. And, um, these things are for us, for all of us. And we ask for your blessing in Christ's name. All right, so we are at the end of John chapter 6. Almost made it last week, but didn't quite. So the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, they all present a point in Jesus' ministry where it comes to a place where he is being progressively rejected by the nation of Israel, both the leadership and the people of Israel. He is the long-awaited Messiah, but they don't want what he's bringing to them. They don't see the value in it. And that's not really a surprise. Um, human beings are sinful. Israel isn't more sinful than other people. They just sort of represent our sin. I mean, scripturally speaking, the whole history of the Old Testament is disaster and failure on the part of God's people to obey him, the chosen people. But um, Jesus came to die for our sins and to rise again. But the rejection of him by his people is part of God's amazing plan to confirm the lostness of humanity because there we see it and uh, that would that would be us if we were there at the time you know God sends his son into the world and we don't care for him at the same time God is providing the very means of our salvation through Christ so his coming shows the wickedness of man and his rejection and it shows how much God loves us by him dying for us to pay for our sins to invite us to, into a relationship with himself. So men are sold out to sin. So much so that they reject God's son, the perfect man. And the perfect man to came to save us. So God's son turns this rejection into the means of delivering us from our lost condition. And restoring us to the father. You might be surprised to learn that God's wisdom is higher than our wisdom. And he uses all kinds of amazing ways to get things to come out the way he wants. So he uses the rejection of men to get our salvation, to provide for it. That said, it's, it's hard to exaggerate how wildly popular Jesus was at first. I mean, you can guess why. The miracles, the, the healing, the wisdom, um, compelling personality, all of that. Only the religious leaders disliked him right from the beginning because he directly challenged them on their hypocrisy. In fact, pretty early on, they want him dead. That, that is in their minds early on. Is there a way to get rid of this guy? But generally speaking, he's really popular with, with the people. His miracles of healing are undeniable and they're not rare. He's doing it all the time, all over Israel. He heals people everywhere he goes throughout the nation. But over time... This rejection of him grows. And in, in Matthew's gospel, there's a definite turning point in chapter 13. You're like you're getting to the middle of the gospel and, and he chronicles the progression of doubt and rejection over the course of several chapters there. In fact, Matthew, it, the turning point in chapter 13 is where Jesus starts speaking in parables, almost exclusively. And parables are not always easy to understand. I think if... I added up all the Bible questions I get from people. Most of them are, what does this parable mean? So that, that's one of the main things. Is they're, they're difficult even for us. Not like the Sermon on the Mount, which is almost completely parable free. 
Um, Matthew 13 starts the parable teaching but before that Jesus teaching was amazing and clear and really easy to understand and Matthew says that when people heard the sermon on the mount says the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes but starting in Matthew 13 that's no longer the case parables become the main feature of Jesus teaching so you go to see Jesus and you're going to hear some interesting parables some of them you can get and some of them you'll be scratching your head about it's so noticeable that the disciples asked Jesus why do you speak to them in parables because that's not what he'd been doing previously the Sermon on the Mount like I said is prime Jesus teaching and it doesn't it doesn't have parables in it it's not not like these so listen to his answer to that question. Why do you speak to them in parables? This is Matthew 13, 11, okay? Jesus answered, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Wow. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see and while hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah. And Isaiah says, you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. So that was true 700 years before Christ when Isaiah was the great prophet probably the greatest of prophets really and it's true in Jesus time as well so the crowds are still coming because he still has compassion on them and he heals every manner of affliction and disease and all the issues they're dealing with but he's no longer offering them clear teaching about the kingdom one bible teacher said it like this because they did not have the because they did not have the love of the truth they would not get the light of the truth and i think he's right there and William McDonald, he says, willful blindness is followed by judicial blindness. In other words, if you are just refusing to embrace what Jesus is saying or his teaching or who he is or all that, eventually God just puts you in that place. He holds you there. And McDonald goes on, he says, they profess to see, that is to be familiar with divine truth, but truth incarnate stood before them and they resolutely refused to see him. They professed to hear God's word, but the living word of God was in their midst and they would not obey him. They were unwilling to understand the wonderful fact of the incarnation. Therefore, the capacity to understand was taken from them. That's, that's it. And John chapter 6 is where that turns in John's gospel. And we looked at that last week. They could not accept that Jesus of Nazareth was the bread out of heaven. That's what they got all freaked out about. Despite the incredible miracles, his personal life, which was perfectly holy, and his unparalleled teaching. And we saw last time this rejection begins to happen within just the scope of two days. That There's really a dramatic turning point, at least with amongst a certain group of people in Galilee. In two days, Jesus went from a, a crowd of Galileans literally wanting to make him king, force him to become the king, to many of his own disciples not walking with him anymore. And that's what we saw last week at the end of John chapter 6. That's an amazing change. So last week we talked about three different groups 
that turn against him during this kind of intense exchange in chapter 6 about him claiming to be the true bread out of heaven and they need to eat him and drink his blood you know is the way he puts it of course that's all and he says this is spiritual truth we're talking about but the crowd that wanted the bread that had crossed the sea of Galilee to follow him because he made bread when he fed the 5,000 they couldn't handle it they couldn't handle him saying he was the bread of heaven in fact Jesus says in John 6 35 he says I'm the bread of life he who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst you have seen me and yet you do not believe so he says this is who I am and you don't believe and then the Jewish leaders said in John chapter 6 is this not Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know how does he now say I have come down out of heaven they wouldn't believe him and then you have his own disciples who balk at this claim of him coming down from heaven and being the bread out of heaven and he says to them in chapter 6 verse 63 and 64 it says Jesus says it's the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life but there are some of you who do not believe and John tells us after that in verse 64 for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him and he was saying for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him from the father there's that word granted in verse 65 again so um, no one can come to me unless it's been granted him from the father and that's the same word I just read you in Matthew chapter 13 verse 11 to you he says to the twelve it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom but to them it has not been granted to those that don't get it so Jesus knows that these followers do not believe in him who doesn't believe in him and who does believe in him it's not been granted to them now remember this all happens in Capernaum Capernaum is Jesus headquarters so in John chapter 6 at the end it's taking place right where Jesus is the most well known the synagogue leaders are there that are there are the synagogue that's the synagogue he goes to when he's in town now he traveled a lot of preaching of course but whenever he was in town back in Capernaum his central place uh, that's where he would go to that synagogue but but there right in that spot where so many knew him and so many professed to follow him many of them walk away and then in verse 67 Jesus turns to the 12 and he says you don't want to go away also do you? You don't want to go away also do you? They are pretty much all that's left on that day. And Peter speaks up. Now sometimes Peter says really stupid stuff. <laughs> Dumb stuff. But sometimes like this time Peter is right on. Right on the mark. Verse 68, John 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter knew this much. If there's a path to eternal life offered anywhere, it was in what Jesus had been telling them. And what did Jesus tell them? Well, if you back up to verse 40 in chapter 6, he said... This is the will of my Father that everyone, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. 
and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's what he told them. And Peter says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We believe your words. You have the words of eternal life. And Peter says, we're firm in this. And he uses the we, we, we 12, the 12 of us. Jesus is the bread out of heaven. They believe that eternal life is in him. Jesus not only has the words of eternal life, but he is the Messiah. He is the Holy One of God. Now I have to pause here because some of you have a King James Bible or a New King James Bible and the wording is different there. So the Greek text used in the 1611 translation of the Bible quite a few years ago, um, that actually has Peter say the words that Peter does say in Matthew chapter 16 verse 16 which are very famous. You are the Christ the son of the living God. So if you have a King James or a New King James it probably says that right there right. And he doesn't say you are the holy one of God. He says you are the Christ the son of the living God. Which Peter does say in Matthew 16. But in John chapter 6 we're in Capernaum and in this verse in the earlier manuscripts uh, tradition supports Peter saying the holy one of God. You are the holy one of God. So I think all the recent translations would say that. Yours probably says something like that. If you don't have a King James Bible. But the title for Jesus. The holy one of God. That's pretty rare in the gospels. I think the only other place it's really used directly. Is in Mark's gospel. In the, the very beginning. In the first chapter. There's a demon speaking out of a possessed man. And he says have you come to destroy us. I know who you are. The holy one of God. So uh, Jesus is called that there obviously. So holy one just means set apart, right? And that word, that phrase can be used in a lot of different ways. It can be set apart by nature. God is set apart from all of creation because he is the uncreated infinite God. He is holy in that sense. It can be set apart for a purpose. So that title holy one is used of God himself in the Old Testament, but it's also used of people who represent God. Uh, the high priest, for example, or angels are called holy ones and um, here it's carrying a definite messianic idea and holy one is also used of the Messiah especially in Isaiah but the holy one is the one commissioned by God to bring eternal life to see that he sends into the world. So Jesus is set apart in that purpose. He's also set apart by nature because if you read the first chapter in John's gospel he is God right? He's holy and utterly different from us because he is God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word Thank you. Was God. Very good. So um, that's pretty wonderful stuff there. So in John's gospel Jesus clearly presented as God in human flesh has been uh, asserted very strongly since the very first chapter. The apostles also in chapter 1 if you keep reading after verse 1 in chapter 1 they call Jesus the Messiah. They call him the son of God. John the Baptist does. Peter is just affirming what the twelve that the 12 will not leave Jesus because they believe all of that and they're not going to change. That's the idea. We are all in. That's, that's what he would say if he lived today. We're all in Lord. But uh, Now Peter doesn't know what will happen with Judas because he says we including Judas the 12 right and Jesus is speaking to the 12. He doesn't know about Peter so he's including him in the group too. He's gonna, they're all going to be shocked at the end when Judas betrays them but Jesus says it's going to be shocked. Jesus sees into the heart of Judas. That's why he said what he did. So after Peter makes this wonderful declaration. Then Jesus says. Did I myself not choose you. The twelve. And yet one of you is a devil. That's verse 70. 
Then John adds this comment and this is the last verse in chapter 6. Now he meant Judas the son of Simon Iscariot for he one of the twelve was going to betray him. He just puts that out there. So Jesus knew Peter didn't know but Peter's saying we're going to be loyal we believe we do believe we believe in everything you've said we believe you're the bread out of heaven. So um, that's how chapter 6 ends but before we go on to chapter 7 just stop for a second I want you to think about Peter's um, answer that rhetorical question in response to Jesus what Peter responds to Jesus he says Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life to whom shall we go is the great question right what is the alternative what is the alternative what does the world offer us instead of Jesus where would you go yeah I heard somebody say nothing yes that's that's what I would say too but it claims to offer all kinds of things in place of Jesus doesn't it has has any man or any religion or any philosophy even come close over the last 2000 years since Jesus came to be a, an actual rival to him in his wisdom in his compassion in his perfections and the beauty of the story of his life where would we go if it wasn't for him what would the world be like if it wasn't for him you know I'm reading this book right now I just started it it's Tom Holland's book he he's kind of a semi-Christian I think but um, it's called Dominion and he's describing how the impact of Jesus life and the way he died completely changed the world I don't know if you heard but um, Ian Hirsi Ali she's a very famous atheist she just wrote an essay the other day saying she's a Christian now and I don't know if she's a born-again Christian but she definitely but she read Tom Holland's book that's why I'm reading it I'm like I'm really curious as to how that that hit her but the transformation of society the things that we hold most dear in in our civilization that are being undermined and cast out all the time now um, are rooted in the death of Christ and uh, who he, he, he was, how he influenced civilization. It's pretty remarkable. Just to be opening parts of the book are like, wow, that's amazing. Hadn't, things I hadn't really thought about clearly before, as clearly. But where would we go? I mean, where would we go? You know, where are you going to leave Jesus? What are you going to grasp onto? Some of these kind of famous Christian names you hear and they apostate, they, they turn apostate and go into the world and you go, wow, what did they find better than Jesus? And kind of listen to what they're saying and man, they got sad, nothing. Generally it's sex. That's kind of what they were interested in. Just some kind of a sexual fulfillment. Well, that isn't going to last forever. That might even not even last to the end of your life, let alone eternally. To give him up for that is pretty pathetic. So let's turn our attention from chapter, chapter 6 to chapter 7. In chapter 6 we thought, saw the three groups turning away from Jesus. Some with anger but others just walked away from him. So we had the Galilean crowd wanting bread, right? They wanted an earthly king, a provider. The Jewish synagogue leaders grumbled about the claims of Jesus to be the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. And then sadly many of those who were his followers walked away after he made it clear that he's the source of life and no one could come to him unless the father granted it to them. Now in chapter 7 we meet a few other people who don't believe. See we're, we're seeing the rejection. That's what's going on now. We're starting to see the rejection which is why Jesus started preaching in parables. So these next men 
are people that have known Jesus his whole life long. They knew Jesus as a kid and have known him well. They ate with him. They probably worked by his side when he was a carpenter construction guy. I mean it was a family trade. Carpentry and construction right? And they are family. We're talking about Jesus brothers. Flesh and blood brothers. Or you could say half brother. Because Mary was a little bit different in his birth right? (laughs) Jesus had sisters too. But we have the four brothers names. They're given to us. James, Joseph, Simon and Judas. James, Joseph, Simon and Judas. All very common Jewish names. The kind of names that crop up all the time. There's so many Simons in the Bible. Because that was a. It's like when you go to Russia. There's about five male names. And everybody's got them. They're just. But Jesus had sisters too. Sisters. We're just told he had sisters. That's plural. So there were at least seven kids. That Mary and Joseph had. And um, Jesus is the eldest obviously. So the setting is still Capernaum. And the time is the arrival of the feast of tabernacles. So now we're moving forward in time. In, in chapter 7. And, and the Feast of Tabernacles is about halfway to Passover. So we've seen previous Passovers. Now it's the Feast of Tabernacles or booths as it's sometimes called. And it, then it'll be another five or six months to, to Passover time. So like Passover this feast is a pilgrimage feast. And so all the men are supposed to go. So chapter 7 verse 1. After these things Jesus was walking in Galilee. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea. Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now when John says the Jews. He usually means the Jewish leadership. So which is exactly right. Now the feast of the Jews. The feast of booths was near. So that feast is coming up. So Jesus had kept his primary ministry in the north. During this time. There's a lot of cities and villages and hamlets. To be preached to. And bring the message of the kingdom of God. And John is explicit. In saying that the reason genistered. Jesus ministered there at this particular time was because death was imminent if he went south if he went to Jerusalem so they were seeking to kill him they were looking for him so he's on a timetable he's going to do what the father wants him to do he's preaching to all the cities and the things so he's staying up north right now because now it's so dangerous in the south and he doesn't he can't have his ministry cut short too early so he's just doing what the Lord is wanting him to do so that's what he's doing. So John's very clear about that. It's, it's amazing because he came to give his life. But not at their schedule. On, on the father's schedule. So he's waiting. So after giving us this setting then. That's sort of the picture here. So John brings us into the middle. Suddenly we're in the middle of a conversation between Jesus and his brothers. So that's what's going on. He gives us the time. He tells us why Jesus is staying in the north. And now we're kind of right in the middle of a conversation between Jesus and his brothers. And as John usually does. He only gives us little snippets of conversations. That are probably much deeper and longer. Right. But he gives us the key things that he wants us to know. So the brothers are prodding Jesus to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. In Jerusalem in the south. Where they are ready to kill him. They're trying to get him to go there. They're prodding him. Now there's a difference of opinion among Bible teachers and Bible scholars about whether they are actually trying to help him or whether they're trying to cause him grief. I think it's pretty much always been seen as they're causing him grief and I think it's pretty clear that that's what they're doing. The words are nice though. I mean you could see that you could read them in a nice way. Uh, They're trying to be helpful. But um, I think when you get 
pass the words, you'll notice why the text says these were not spoken for his benefit. So verse 3, therefore his brother said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus, it's time to step up, bro. That's kind of what they're saying. If you're the Messiah, you can't hang around up here in the the sticks, up here in Galilee. Your, Your profile is too low. That's your problem. You probably... That's probably why you're losing disciples. We heard the other day a couple of guys walked out on you. You know, We heard about that. So it's time to get it going. Go to the capital. Go to the temple. Everyone's going to be there. Do your miracles where it actually counts. Bold action. Bold action is what required in this situation. So that's kind of the gist of their speech there. Needless to say, these guys have no spiritual insight whatsoever. And they're not even thinking about that. Because verse 5 tells you why. And this is why I, I'm pretty sure... It was not well, well thought through or positive. It just simply says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So in case you wondered, they're unbelievers too. These are the guys that grew up with him. He was probably the goody-goody <laughs> that never got, never gotten mom and dad's way, right? Oh man, they hated him. <laughs> Don't you hate that kid? <laughs> So they don't believe. So they're giving him advice about his ministry and they don't even believe that he's the Messiah or the Son of God or anything like that. He's their brother. Mom might believe that stuff. <laughs> yes, you're very pious. You're more religious than we are. We've always known you. We've known for 30 years and we, we never saw anything amazing or astounding that you did all those years. You did your job. You were super religious. You went to the synagogue. We know. But we never saw any miracles during all that time. But this we can tell you, you'll never be anything great if you don't put yourself out there where it counts. So get down there to the south and go to the temple. That's the advice of unbelievers. So the gospels actually indicate in other places that the brothers don't believe as well. Let me just share a couple of those real quick. So Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, is particularly interesting because Mark tells us that huge crowds were following Jesus in Galilee even coming from Jerusalem and Judea and from across the Jordan River where Jordan is today, where we call Jordan. And they were coming from the coastal regions, he says, of Tyre and Sidon. That's way up north on the coast, like Lebanon today. So they were coming from all over. Mark chapter 3 verse 8 says, A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And then verse 20 it says, He came home... That would be Capernaum. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him because they were saying he has lost his senses. He's he's losing it. And Mark doesn't use the word family there. He says those of him. Literally that's what the Greek says. Or his people. That's the idea there. So that could be family or it could be. I don't know who else it would be. But it could be. But in Mark 3.31 it does say family. And that's just a little bit farther down. Chapter 31 of Mark. Then his mother and brothers arrived. And standing outside they sent word to him and called him and the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him behold your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. 
Answering them he said who are my mother and my brothers. And looking at those sitting around him. He said behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God. Is my brother and sister and mother. That is family waiting outside. They can't get to him because the crowd's so thick. But they call for him. And the word gets passed down to him. And they, they want they want him to come see them and he says who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who's my sisters? It's those that are here that want to hear. Those that are part of what we're doing here. They're disciples. So this is talking about family and they think he's off kilter. He's losing it somehow. Now mom might have a really great interest in protecting him. I mean he can't eat right? It just says that he's working himself to death maybe as in her mind but they actually want to bring him home and straighten him out or protect him in some way but he's about doing God's will he is ever and always about doing God's will so in chapter 7 back in John here the brothers who don't believe are coming at him and all he does all he does they're thinking about everything he's doing from a totally worldly point of view And Jesus sees right through their advice. And he knows it's silly. And I think he knows it's malicious too. There's something not right there. And he answers them with a profound insight. And again Jesus can read hearts. So he knows what's going on. And they're not going to understand it. And he knows they're not going to understand it. But he's going to say it anyway. So verse 6. Jesus said to them. My time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune it's always your time but my time has not yet come he's it's pretty clever what he's saying there it's always time for the world to to throw out its ideas its opinions it's always time for the world to get it wrong to be unserious to put to put man's will before God's will that that's the way of the world your time is always here acting like you're acting and saying the things that you're saying but he's on a schedule And he's doing what the father tells him to do. And he says that in many ways throughout the gospel. Well you could go back to chapter 2. You remember the wedding at Cana? And Mary comes to Jesus. He'd never done a miracle before. But somehow he's a problem solver. So she goes to her her son. The the sharp one who just started his ministry. And had not done a miracle. And she tells him. um, There's a horrible wine problem. Remember that? (laughs) They're way short. Do something about it. And what does he tell her? Kind of what he tells the brothers. My hour has not yet come. He, I'm on a schedule. And it's not time for me to totally reveal that yet. Because he wants to go to the temple and start there. So he hasn't done that yet. So um, what does he do? Well he actually works out a way to do a quiet miracle. That not many people are going to see. But everybody can enjoy and solve the problem. But not blow everything. So he works it out. Remember what she said? She says just do what he tells you. All right, mom. So he figures it out. But, uh, but the miracles were supposed to wait because he's on this certain schedule. But for her sake, he figured it out. So in other places, Jesus says things like John chapter 8, verse 29. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Or John 14, 31. So that the world may know that I love the father. I do exactly as the father commanded me. 
or 1249. I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I follow the Father's orders. I'm a completely obedient son. That's what he says all the time. And that includes his schedule. The things he's going to do, the places he's going to go. And amazingly, Jesus doesn't let his brothers set his schedule. Isn't that amazing? His brothers want to tell him what to do and where to go and he says, no, I, the Father tells me that. So my time is not yet here. That's usually a reference to his time of suffering and death. And that's probably the case here. The time for me to be killed is not yet here. So the brothers are pushing him to declare himself in a very public way, to go publicly to the, to the feast, to bring a retinue with him, bring disciples with him, make a showing. Show everybody who you are. And that's going to kind of force a confrontation that would lead, lead Jesus to death row probably. Doing it on their time schedule and the way they want it to be done. So the Passover lamb of God cannot die at the Feast of Tabernacles. That doesn't work. Jesus has come to die on Passover because he's the Passover lamb. So that's a half a year away from this. So Jesus always does what the father wants him to do. Always follows his directions. And the father is saying not yet. Right? It's not time for that yet. But let's look at what he does say to his brothers in verse 7. It's pretty insightful about mankind as well. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me. Why would the world hate Jesus? Why would the world hate Jesus? Because I testify of it. That its deeds are evil. Oh that's why. Yeah that's exactly why. That's it. I mean, that's it, isn't it? This is what makes the world hate the Jesus of the Bible. And if you meet worldly people who love Jesus and you start telling them what Jesus actually says, they get really upset because they don't want to hear that stuff. If we testify to the world of what is evil, guess what's going to happen to us? They're not going to like us too much either. That's what they don't like about us. Now if you tuck your chin down and pull your collar up and kind of hide and never say that sin is an affront to God. If you, if you just refrain from saying that, you'll be okay. The world will like you. You can be a sweet person. But if you point out that all of mankind are sinful, every single one of us deserves death and hell. And, and if you say that many socially acceptable and praised behaviors in our culture are actually sin, you're going to be hated. I promise. I can't make many clear promises because I'm not a prophet. But I can promise you that. If you, if you tell the culture that what they're doing is sinful, people will hate you for that. If you point out that mankind is sinful and these behaviors are sinful, even if you say it with the most compassion and the calm, calm, sweet spirit, the hate comes out. So kind of expect it. And it's okay because that's the way it's supposed to be. But um, be ready for that. And sadly, I think most sadly of all, many churches in our culture prefer not to be hated. And so they don't say anything about those things. They will not follow Jesus in this. They will not testify to the world that its deeds are evil. They won't do that. Now if you keep quiet about sin, individuals might help you, individual people out there might hate you anyway. I mean, 
there's plenty of hate going around for all kinds of reasons. So, you, you know, even if, you're, even if you're just in the wrong group, people hate you, right? It's, it's very cool right now to hate Jewish people, I've noticed. Um, I honestly thought we were over that, but uh, this is a new generation that doesn't remember what happened to them in the past and has a totally different view of that. They don't know how they were treated in all around the world and even in America at certain, certain levels. And modern people, young people especially, are literally being trained in the education system to hate people, you know, the wrong group, that kind of a thing. So there's no shortage of hate out there anyway, but Jesus is talking about a particular kind of hate directed at those who stand up for what is righteous and true and acknowledge that and speak about it. People who call sin, sin. This hate comes not from personal prejudice or meanness, but from a refusal to acknowledge guilt before God. People will not do that and they hate being reminded that they're accountable to God. And they will say, and you've probably heard it personally many times, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge me, right? And, it, and if you say, I'm not judging you, I'm just telling you what God says in the Bible. This is God's word, this is what he says. So um, that hate comes from the world. That's the language Jesus uses, the world will hate you. So Jesus speaks of the world. When he's doing that, he's referring to all the the ways and the belief systems of mankind. And they're varied, they're all over the place, right? There's all different kinds of things. The world has its own moralities, its own customs, its own priorities, and its own pleasures. The world has many belief systems and ideologies and worldviews and stories and explanations of reality. It has many lenses through which it interprets the world around them. The, the world has all different kinds of play. Go to different countries, it's different. Different times, it's different. But in all these things, as, as diverse as the world is, it shares an abiding disdain and hatred for the God that made us. That's the common thread of humanity. And the same God who became man to die for us, to die for our sins, our errors, our willful at rejection of him. God sent his son to die for us and we hate him because he testifies that our deeds are evil. And if we can't humble ourselves and say, yes, they are. Yes, I am evil, corrupt, dark, and I need light and I need salvation and I need to be reconciled to God. If you can't do that, you're part of the world. So the world is man's anti-God nature. The world embraces substitutes for the real God and they invent their own gods or have their own ways of looking at everything. So that's why in Luke chapter 16 verse 15 Jesus said, that which is esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The things men love the most about things, the wickedness, just look at the world around us. They're just celebrating wickedness all the time in very many different ways completely at odds with what God thinks. That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Paul in Romans chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed to the world, right? The world wants to mold you and you can't be conformed to the world. John's letter, 1 John 5, 19, the whole world, he says, lies in the power of the evil one. The world follows Satan's ways. 
And folks, Satan hates God. Have you ever picked up on that? (laughs) So Jesus dealt with hate all through his ministry because that's the natural inclination of men when the truth is brought about their, their own sinfulness and their own inclination. Now some people hated Jesus for his compassion because he loved people on the margins of society, the, the downcast, the sinners, the lost souls. Those are the people he sought out the most and he loved them and the respectable people hated him for that, right? Mainly though, he was hated the most for exposing the sins of the religious elites, the, the men who lived for their reputation for piety. That was what they cared about, that people would see them as righteous. Well, if you tell a self-righteous person or a person that claims to be righteous that they're really sinful and you start pointing out their sins specifically, they're gonna hate you the most of all because they think they're so super and, and they only care about how people think about them, not what God thinks of them. So they have to maintain this this religious identity that they have. And Jesus called out their sins. And he called out how pathetic their public displays of piety were. He called them hypocrites. Which is just the Greek word for actor. Hippocrates. Oh, he was a great actor. They hated him because they were full of the world. They were invested in the world that they had created. Many people today want nothing to do with Jesus for exactly the same reasons because he calls sin, sin. And they don't want to hear it. They, it makes them angry. And he says repent and they don't want to repent. That's the last thing they want to do. So people hate Jesus for calling them out, for upholding God's judgment on creatures, his wayward creatures. Okay, let's get back to uh, God's timing here. And Jesus is being pressured by his very unserious brothers unhelpful brothers and he says to them in verse 8 go up to the feast yourselves I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come having said these things to them he stayed in Galilee so he doesn't go on their timetable he actually is going to go but he's going to go after most of the feast is actually over so he's not going up to the full feast thing so he's waiting for the father's direction and that will include waiting for the pilgrimage crowds that are streaming to Jerusalem to be Oh, already there, already passing. Jesus actually mentions the first days of the feast. Verse 14 says he showed up in the middle of the feast. Well, it's an eight-day feast, so day four, day five, something like that is when he finally comes by himself. Verse 10 says when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Because he's not there, right? So they're waiting for him. Because he usually does come to the feast because he's actually required to. But um, where is he? So it's day one, it's day two, nobody can find him. Day three, nobody sees him. Day four, uh, then finally he shows up. Well, they're done looking by that time. So he's kind of on his own. Verse, Verse 12, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some people were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So the religious leaders were so opposed to him, you couldn't even talk well of him. It's like being on a college campus and talking excitedly about Jesus. Um, you'll get the same sort of reaction. You're, you'll get shouted down or um, people will be angry with you. But this stage in Jesus' ministry, uh, official opposition to him, it's starting to get near the end. 
The official opposition has coalesced. They're already looking for him. They're planning on taking him at some point. People in Judea don't even feel free to openly support him. It's getting more and more dangerous. But Jesus does come in God's time at the right time. And what happens is really interesting. So they want to seize him. But as we start working through chapter 7. You'll find out they can't. Something's stopping it from happening. And it's because he has to die on Passover. But they want to so much. And that's something we can investigate next time. But I want to say this too. I should mention that two of Jesus brothers. At least two. Maybe all of them. But James and Judas. Eventually come to be steadfast and dynamic, unyielding Christians with complete faith in, in their brother Jesus after the resurrection. That, that one's a pretty convincing situation there. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus specially appeared to his brother James. And then James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's so famous. He's even in literature outside the Bible, Jewish histories of that time he was such a famous person. So he becomes one of the great Christians of the Christian faith and he wrote the little book of James you find in the back of the Bible. And Jude is Jesus brother Judas. He also became a believer and he wrote in the Bible as well that little book of Jude in the back of the Bible. So the boys do come around eventually. God, God drew them and saved them. As Jesus says in chapter 6, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And they came in the God's time. And they call that irresistible grace for a reason. Because God saves people when he's ready. And even though they were unbelievers, the time was right for them to come and they did. All right, let's pray. And we'll pick it up next time. Lord, let us see our world through your eyes. Let us have compassion on the world as Jesus had compassion no matter how they treat us. It's a world very much in need of your light. And you have people out there ready to come to you that you are drawing if we speak to them. The people around us need a savior. So we ask you to use us. Draw them through our witness and our love and the truth that we hold dear. You alone, O oh Lord, have the words of eternal life. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.